Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. A little Lauren Hill for you guys. The Two Tongues Podcast coming at you. I really can't help but sing that Fuji song in my head every time I hear that last bit of that intro. I don't know about you. Are you singing Fuji's with me? All right, here we go. What are we doing today? Today, we're going back to Von Franz today. So we're going to continue with our <clears throat> with our Carl Jung uh, business. This uh, series is called Jung's Greatest Pupil, and we're going back and forth between Louise von Franz and Eric Neumann. And I got to say, I think it's been really fun to read them. It's challenging to read them all at the same time because I'm reading Young's Red Book also, so all three of them at the same time. Uh, but it's also interesting because it's, well, it's interesting how often insights from Neumann or Young will will filter into von Franz and vice versa. Um, so it's, it's, I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it. This may be a teensy bit of a shorter episode for you. Um, if you guys remember von Franz, uh, when we started reading her was, she was the lady that was taking a look at folk tales and fairy tales and figuring out what the depth psychology interpretation, what, what, what is, the, what do the symbols mean? You know, and it's the same kind of thing that Young and Joseph Campbell and other people do with with religious stories and, and myths. Um, I just got a book that I'm uh, really interested in reading. It's called The Eternal Drama by a guy named Edward Edinger. And it's the same type of analysis that we're doing with von Franz, but it's about specifically about Greek myths. So that's going to come uh, at some point. You guys can look forward to that. Um, this episode... I want to call the hole in ourselves. So we're do, we're doing von Franz. We're doing fairy tales and interpreting them like like um, uh, Freud would interpret dreams. You know. Uh, so just to refresh your memory, von Franz introduced us to the idea that the fairy world, the underworld, in the realm of the gods, as well as the stories we tell about them, are in fact stories about encounters with the unconscious within us. Very, very interesting. She says, um, fairy tales in our myths become, well, they become what Jordan Peterson would call a meta story. You know, he, he describes it like talking about heroes, different heroes from stories. And he says, like, as a human being, you can see people doing heroic things in your life. Maybe it's some sort of selfless self-sacrifice, you know, like, um, like my, like my father, I learned used to, uh, used to save all of his uh, sick days and vacation days, and he would use them all um, around Christmas time. He'd cash them in. 
So he never actually took any time off, but he cashed in all of his sick time so that he can afford Christmas presents for the family. I learned that as a man, as an adult, and I just thought, son of a bitch, man, what a sacrifice that man made. Um, that kind of thing, you know, you see a stranger drowning in a pool, you, you jump in after them, you pull them out of the ice, that type of selfless act that you look at and you think, that's a heroic thing. But you see that, you see that with people um, here and there. I mean, people don't act heroically as often as maybe we, maybe, maybe be better if we did more frequently, but you see it from time to time. You see it in movies, you see it in stories, you see it in books. And after enough instances of seeing what a hero's like, what you can do is you can distill it, you know, distill the essence of a hero down to its very core because you've seen it so many times. Now you can, now you can you understand, you know, what's common about all these different heroes and you can create a better hero. You know, you can take all these heroes, take all the best qualities from them. You can put them together and you can make a better hero or a better hero story. And that's something that Jordan calls a meta story. And that hero, that, that composite hero is a meta hero. And that's how you get superheroes. That's how you get, you know, legendary heroes. Um, they're, they're something like a distillation of what it means to be a hero. And our fairy tales are very much like that. They're meta stories. They're stories that condense something down that's very important and maybe difficult to understand and and it's put in a oftentimes a narrative a simple narrative way it telling a story to get you to see what's important in the story and that's easier for us than if you just tell us a fact 100% guarantee this if you're studying for a test and somebody tells you all of the facts versus telling you a story that includes those facts, you are way, way more likely to understand and remember and recall the details from the story than you are a list of facts. It's just the way it is. So the stories become really important. All right, so fairy tales and our myths become meta stories that condense and codify the dangers and benefits of an encounter with the mystical source of our conscious being the unconscious. Now, remember, the unconscious realm, that's what von Franz told us. That's the fairy realm, the realm of the gods, you know, the realm of the, under, of the underworld, the realm of spirits, the realm of our ancestors. It's that weird place that we, can, that we can go sometimes, maybe in our dreams, maybe when we're dead, you know, maybe when we're really sick with a fever or on psychedelic drugs. It's a place that we have access to. So we're going to tell stories about that place. Um, okay, he, uh, we continue down this line, the same line today, by examining the forms of the unconscious takes in our stories, the eerie lands and creatures that inhabit it, and most importantly, the portal between them, between the conscious land of the living and the unconscious land of mystery. Now pay careful attention and you will see images and associations that serve as an analogy bridging the known to the unknown, the conscious to the unconscious. Their ancient origins can still be found manifest in our cultures today. Let's follow those breadcrumbs together, shall we? All right, that brings me to the first section today, which we're going to call a hole in the earth, the sky hole and the cave. 
All right, so the first myth that von Franz brings to us in this piece is a, another myth from, I think, Siberia, but she, she says Russia. There's a group of people there called the Kanti. As he, she says that they're an indigenous people, I'm assuming uh, Siberian, in, Inuit, Eskimo, that sort of thing. Um, the myth is called the man who remained under the earth. And I'm going to give you a paraphrase. Um, just going to kind of uh, wrap this myth up as quickly as I can so you get the gist. It goes something like this. So in this story, there's two hunters, and they arrive back to camp successfully with game. They, they killed some sort of animal. They bring it back to camp. One of the hunters falls asleep while the other hunter prepares the meal. After a while, the awake hunter sees something he can't explain. He sees something inexplicable. It, it rolls out of the sleeping hunter's tent. He, he realizes that they're eyeballs, you know, disembodied eyeballs that roll out of the tent. And where they're going, he doesn't know, but he decides he better follow them because that's a crazy thing, right? His, these eyeballs roll out of the tent. They start rolling off into the woods. He follows them into the woods. Eventually, the eyes come to rest for a time at a certain spot. Then they just roll back the way they came. They roll right back into the tent, presumably right back into the hunter's eyes. Of course, he wakes up, and he comes out of the tent, and he tells the other hunter about this crazy dream he had. He said he traveled into the forest, deep into the forest, and he finds a treasure buried there. So, well... The hunter that was awake and saw this was like, you're never going to believe it, but your eyes came rolling out of the tent. I think I know this spot in the woods. So they go, they follow the trail, they find the spot, and they start digging. And here they find the entrance to an underground cavern, this giant opening under the earth where an old woman, an old woman lives. Now the hunter who dreamt of the cavern decides to stay with the, with the old woman forever underground, which is why the tale is called The Man Who Remained Under the Earth. But this is the gist of the dream. This is the gist of the myth, okay? And von Franz says, a dream is in most cases a visual experience in which we perceive a series of inner pictures, often without being directly involved in the action. She says, this prompts the primitive belief that it is the eyes themselves that go out, that travel around, and communicate wonderful experiences. So there's some interesting stuff here. Interesting that the eyeballs are seen to roll out of the out of the hunter, and the connection back to these visual experiences, whether they're dreams or even a visual sort of psychedelic experience or mystic experience, you have something like that, a hallucination, a vision, whatever you want to call it, and it very often is something that you're not directly engaged with. You know, a dream is sometimes very often, and in a, a psychedelic trip very often, is like a series of images. You know, you're just scrolling through images, or the images are transforming one into the other. It's something that seems to be a visual experience and an emotional experience. Those two things above all. And so in this fairy tale we see the eyes themselves going out because it's a visual experience that people that people recall, recount uh, when they talk about experiences of the unconscious, whether that be a dream or, or a psychedelic vision or what have you. There's also something interesting that eyes are symbolically associated with consciousness. 
because eyes are the thing which sees, you know? We think about ourselves as whatever it is behind our eyes that sees out through them. You know, that's what we are. That's our consciousness. We also say things like the light of consciousness because, because well, when we're awake, when we're conscious, we see. That's also when the sun is out. And, and so we make a connection between light, the sun, and eyes. All of those things are linked to consciousness. And the opposite, of course, darkness is, is associated with the unconscious. So eyes, symbolically, there's something like the spirit, you know, the thing that can leave the body in a dream or in a vision. And that's what we see in this, in this uh, Siberian story. Uh, fairy tale. We also find the theme of treasure to be found in the underworld or the unconscious. The old woman uh, represents the seer. You know, she's, well, she represents the seer's unconscious, you might say. She's his feminine half, what Carl Jung would call the anima. You know, the part of, if, if you're a man, um, there's a symbol. Um, that represents the feminine part of you, the part of you that you often deny, the part of you that culture often forces you to deny, right? Be a man, don't cry, be a man, you know, uh, there's no crying in baseball, all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, men are just like women. Uh, we have that sensitive streak. We have, you know, emotional tolerance. We have, you know, um, all the same, all the same issues uh, that a woman would have. And we we're forced to bury them down, to make them unconscious, to not express them. And this is what, uh, this is what we're talking about. Uh, you know, and often symbolized, this anima is often symbolized as an old woman, especially if you're a man having this dream or having this vision. If there's an image of a woman, uh, an old woman, um, you know, in particular, that may be um, and often is a representation of the anima. And that's what is found underground. And what this is what's interesting, because the underground is, is, again, a symbol for the unconscious, the dark place underground, that, you know, the, the realm that exists parallel to ours, just sort of, you know, the, the underground, the underworld, that sort of thing. And who do we find in the underworld, which is a symbol of the unconscious? An old woman, the anima also a symbol of the unconscious, you know? Um, and you see all that here. There's also something interesting that, that uh, happens at the end of the story where it's hard to tell what the treasure is. Remember, there's supposed to be a treasure buried, and what he finds instead is this entrance to the unconscious, to the underworld. And he goes there and decides to stay. He, he never returns to the land of the living. He never returns to consciousness, but stays in the unconscious forever. And this is something that came up in the, uh, in the latest Neumann uh, episode of Young's Greatest Pupils, where we, he talked about something called Ouroboric incest. And that just refers to, the Ouroboros refers to uh, our origin, the place where the cosmos was born. And, and symbolically, it's this union of opposites, this thing that we call the Ouroboros. And people have a desire to sink back into that Ouroboros. And, and the symbol he, he uses to talk about this is, is a fetus in the womb. It's like a fetus, especially early on, um, doesn't have an ego. It doesn't have a sense of itself. You know, it, it exists apart from the mother, sort of, 
because it also exists as part of the mother, and it doesn't have an identity of its own or a will of its own. It's just sort of in this warm, peaceful, slowly rocking, you know, pool of water, this amniotic fluid. It's just in this constant state of receiving nourishment and and, at, and and peace and warmth. It's a very nice feeling, you would imagine, to have no responsibility, to have no will of your own, to not want anything, to have all your needs satisfied as just part of you know, this system you're a part of, your mother. And for the fetus, the mother is everything. It's the cosmos as far as they're concerned. And there is an appeal to the idea of going back there, going back into your mother's womb where there's no responsibility and no will and no fear and no death and no pain, you know, going back to the unconscious. And it seems like, you know, Neumann talks about that like a warning, you know, you don't want to allow yourself to fall into that um, that siren's call, you know, to go back to the unconscious because that leads to things like nihilism and suicide and all kinds of all kinds of things that aren't good. Um, and it seems to me like the story is presenting that as the treasure, right? So they dig down and and they find the unconscious there, and. The guy just stays. It's like this is what I want. This is this is the treasure I was seeking, and um, I don't know that that's good. You know, I, I don't know that that's good. Um, anybody who's had a mystic experience, that ego death experience, where you lose your sense of self, there is a joy and a peace in that. That's well, it's sublime. You know, it's really difficult to to compare to anything, and you can understand the desire to return to it. I understand the desire to return to it. But I also realize the danger there because, you know, if you if you step back into paradise, you may never want to leave. And I'm not sure that's good, you know. All right. So then Von Franz tells a different story. And it's interesting because it's really similar. Uh, this is a European story. So we're going from Siberia to Europe. And the story that we're going to read now, it comes from a guy named Paulus uh, Diaconus from the 700s AD. Um, he was a, uh, church, uh, you know, church father, a deacon of some kind. And he tells his fairy tale, it goes like this. A king is hunting in the forest with a servant when he becomes exhausted and he falls asleep. In his sleep, the servant watches as a snake emerges from the king's mouth and slithers away. He follows the snake who led him to a mountainside where it disappears into a crack. And the servant's just dumbfounded, just waiting, just staring at the rock. And after a while, the snake comes crawling back out of the rock before returning right back into the king's mouth. As soon as the snake is crawled back into the king's mouth, the king awakes he says, you're not going to believe this dream I had. So he dreams he found buried treasure in the forest, deep in the forest. So what happens? The servant's like, well, you're never going to believe this, but a snake came crawling out of your mouth. It took me to a spot in the forest. I think this may be connected. Let's go check it out. Um, they go to that spot where the snake um, stopped and went into the mountain, and they just start digging. And there they find a huge deposit of gold. So they find some physically real treasure. So I don't know about you, but the similarities in those two stories are 
unbelievably striking from two different cultures separated by a huge, a huge distance. Um, you know, I don't think there was a lot of a trade relationship going on between Siberia and Central Europe, but here we go. Uh, here's what I find interesting, though. It's interesting that we see a snake here as the symbol for the king's spirit. You know, it was the eyeballs in the last story. Now it's a snake. And it's interesting because the snake is a symbol of the unconscious. You know, think about the snake in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's the, that's that's them attaining consciousness. They eat, they eat the fruit. They become self-aware, right? They realize they're naked. They become conscious for the first time. Who is there in the garden story? The serpent. So it's this what crawls out of the, out of the king's mouth. So it's, it's symbolized like the eyes were as the thing that can leave the body. Um, but it's also that which animates the king himself. It's like in the story with the eyeballs, when the eyeballs get, when they leave the um, hunter, the hunter is asleep, unconscious. When they return, the hunter awakes. Same thing with the king. The snake, the anima, the animating spirit comes out of, um, out of the king. And when it returns to the king's mouth, the king wakes up and becomes conscious again. So there's this idea here that this snake, the symbol of the unconscious, that, well, the unconscious is the animating spirit of the human being. And I, I love that. I, I think, of course, like human beings are partly conscious and partly unconscious. And, and the unconscious part, to me, I've always understood to be the God part. And that's the part, according to the story, that makes the, the human being alive, conscious. Because when it leaves, the person is asleep and unconscious. So there's something interesting about the idea of the, your soul being the unconscious part of you. The part of you that's not tethered to the material world. The part of you that can leave your body when you're sleeping, or when you're tripping, or when you're you know receiving a revelation. It's really interesting. I mean, how often do you think about the idea of the soul as being your unconscious and about that being the thing responsible for your for for you for for the thing looking out behind your eyes? That's your unconscious somehow. It's amazing. It's this conflation of the of the conscious and the unconscious, which harkens back to this this uh, union of opposites, the Ouroboros that we talked about many times. All right, von Franz goes on. She says, the soul land, so this is again the unconscious, is often characterized by waters. And the entrance is described as a hole. And we saw that in the European story of the king, right? Because the snake slips out through a hole in, in the king's mouth. It also slips into the, un, to the underworld, to the unconscious, using a hole in the mountain, Right? So whether we're talking about the king's mouth as the hole that the snake moves in and out of, or the or the mountain, you know, the entrance to the underworld, to the unconscious, either way, this symbol of the unconscious is moving in and out of a hole, you know, and we're going to continue to see that. All right, so there's another fairy tale that she talks about. It's called The Woman Who Became a Spider. And it goes something like this. After being disappointed by her lover, a girl makes her way up to heaven. 
The myth says that the girl climbed upwards and upwards without knowing how. Finally, she came to a roof with an opening that looked very much like a hole. Now, she manages to get into the hole and finds there air and sky and land. So, she climbs up through a hole in the sky and finds on the other side a whole new land, a whole other world, right? Parallel to our own, like the unconscious realm that runs parallel to the conscious realm. There happens to be a pretty famous mythological parallel here, uh, in a Greek myth of um, Arachne. Um, she's a woman who um, gets into a competition with Athena uh, to weave, right? Like a spider would weave, right? So she's weaving something beautiful. She happens to beat the goddess Athena who, um, well, he, she's not <laughs> none too happy about it. Um, and I think she kills Arachne and... Um, and the thing is, after she's killed, Athena punish, punishes her further by turning her into a spider, right? So you get, you get this woman, this mortal woman, turned into a spider. And what's interesting is that she dies first before she becomes a spider. And death is something like sleep, right? It's, it's something like, uh, um, you know, like tri tripping psychedelic. It's something that gives you that bridge from the, from the conscious world to the unconscious world. And death is one of those. It's the doorway into your unconscious, into your fantasy world. And, and she becomes a spider only after she's died. So you get this interesting um, narrative where the, the mortal woman has to die before she can go back into her unconscious and become this animal creature, you know, a spider. And that's something we talked about before uh, in, in these Carl Jung episodes, that the... the the animal companions of the gods that we see in classical mythology, those things represent the unconscious pieces of that deity, like something that used to be part of the deity uh, before they were removed and became, for one reason or another, no longer part of the, the deity, but some kind of companion. It's like they're trying to strip the god or goddess um, of these qualities that we don't like. And we can't just throw it away, so you end up seeing like a goddess who holds a child or a goddess that's pulled by cats like the goddess Freya or, a, a, you know, the, the Celtic goddess Arturo who's um, always accompanied by a bear. So you have these instances where gods and goddesses will have companions and they represent some piece of the god that has become unconscious. It's been divorced from the, from the god herself. So you see all this stuff happening here with this idea of the woman who became a spider. We also see um, some interesting evidence that Eric Neumann brought up in the, the last uh, Neumann episode where he brought up the, the Norns of uh, Nordic mythology and the weird sisters of Greek mythology because both sets of women were weavers, you know? They both had this connection to the spider and the image of the great mother, you know, that, that one half of the Ouroboros, the unconscious half of the Ouroboros. So you've got this really wide connection between spiders and weaving that 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 happens, and I just think that's so interesting because you can see the you can see a story about a fairy or a god or a goddess that has something to do with spiders or weaving, um, but you would never necessarily make the link uh, back to the unconscious or to the great mother goddess or any of these other things um, unless you know where they came from and why they're connected, and that's what we see here.
Okay, and then von Franz says, after performing the passage from one world into the other, the netherworld again opens up into the cosmic dimension. The netherworld is described as being just like our world, except that it's inhabited by spirits. So the world of fairy tales, the underworld, the world of our unconscious, is something like a mirror of ourselves. It's something like the upside down, right, from uh, Stranger Things. Um, that's, how we, that's how we might imagine it. It's in every way just like our world, but instead of being inhabited by people, it's inhabited by spirits. And what that's supposed to tell you is that there's another half, well, there's, there's, what it's telling you is that there's another half of the world that you don't see. But what that means is that there's another, another half of you that you don't see, the unconscious half. And just like you have an unconscious half, so does the cosmos, you know? So it's not a material world, but a spiritual mirror of the material world. All right, and then von Franz gives us a Chinese fairy tale to consider called The Dragon Princess. And it talks about, well, it goes like this. In the Sea of Donting, there is a hill. And in that hill, there is a hole. And the hole is so deep that it has no bottom. Once a fisherman slipped and fell into the hole, he came to a country full of winding ways. All right, so that's the... Um, short version of the myth. And here again we see a hole, and a hole represents the entrance to this other world, this other realm. It's also interesting because the other realm that he falls into, um, the unconscious world, he says it's full of winding ways. And you can imagine if you're on a path and you see it splitting into a bunch of different directions and all they're all winding around in, in you know, crossing over one another, mm -hmm. you would have no idea where the paths lead. You know, it's not clear where they lead. So if you're in the unconscious, wherever you're going is someplace you've never been. You know, it's all the unknown. It's all confusion and paradox. And that's what you see illustrated here in this new land full of winding ways. And von Franz says, It is always a world characterized by an entrance through a state of unconscious, through sleep, death, trance, or ecstatic rapture. All right, so the idea of a hole leading into the unconscious or into another world, we also see it in a Native American myth called the Sky Woman. Now, this wasn't in von Franz's book, but I happen to know the story, so I wanted to add it in here. Um, in the story of the Sky Woman, we have this tree. It's, it's not just any tree. It's, it's the world tree. It's called the Axis Mundi. It marks the center of the world. Lots and lots of religions have this idea of a world tree or a world pole, something that runs through, uh, through the world. And um, in this story, the world tree has these roots, you know, they go deep, deep, deep into the earth. And so Sky Woman, she crawls down these roots until she finds at the end a hole and it leads to an opening into another sky. You know, so she crawls down the roots of this great tree until she reaches, rather than the underworld, she reaches a hole that opens up to another sky. Like she can fall right into it. And that's what she does. And she finds herself then in our world. She started in the world of the gods somewhere, and she found our world by crawling down the roots of the world tree. 
So, you, so here you have, a, again, this idea of a hole as the portal between one world and, and the other. Now that brings me to part two, which we're going to call the well. And von Franz says, this motif, she's talking about a well. She says, is the well um, is in the well-known Grimm's fairy tale, Mother Holly, where the heroine, by jumping into a well, lands in a lovely green meadow, and finally to Mother Holly's house. I don't know about you, but... That reminds me of the opening scene from Alice in Wonderland where she follows the, follows the rabbit into the, uh, into the hole in the earth and then falls down and down and down. So this is, what, this is what's happening in Mother Holly. Um, now, when, when she gets to Mother Holly's house, it says that she shakes out the bedding. You know, she's, she's shaking out the bedding. And when she does that, it starts to snow in the actual world. And remember, she's, she's fallen down this well into this unconscious, you know, fairy world. And she's shaking out the the blanket, you know, shaking out all the dust, and it's causing snow to fall down into the actual world. So again, you see this connection between, well, it's a connection, but it's also a connection of identity between both worlds. Like, how can you make an action in the unconscious and see it the results in the conscious world? Only if what we're talking about is one thing, really. And that's what I mean when I say things like the other half of yourself, the other half of the world. It's, it's the unconscious part. It's still part of you, even though you don't know it. It's kind, of, it's kind of the point. It's kind of why we call it the unconscious, you know? But that doesn't mean that it's more than one thing. The conscious and the unconscious, yeah, they might be opposites, but they're in union within you and I. We're both. Okay. So the whole connecting one world to the other takes the form of a well because with its deep-lying water table, it looks like an eye in the dark, you know? An eye, of course, represents something like consciousness, and the dark represents the unconscious. So a well is something like that, like the conscious submerged in the unconscious. Now, according to the Quran. The sun, which again we talked about already as a symbol of consciousness because the sun is you know, what we see when we're awake. It's what we see by the sun's light. And being awake, we associate with being conscious. So we have this connection here. So in the Quran, the sun sinks every evening into a well full of black mud. So you can imagine that's something like the unconscious where the light cannot shine, where the light of consciousness can't shine. And in the Quran, they say that's where the door to the underworld lies, in this well where the sun sets every day. In the Old Norse underworld, there's two wells that flow under the world tree. So we talked about the Axis Mundi with the Native American story, the world tree. We see that same thing in Viking mythology. It's called Yagrasil. And from the well underneath Yagrasil... Odin draws his divinatory power. So the god Odin, who can see the future, who knows the future, he gets that power by drawing it from the well under the world tree. So the water, you know, water is something that we see as a symbol of the unconscious, and that's what's in the well. And this is where Odin gets his ability to see the future. So what that tells us symbolically is that the unconscious is a source of revelation. It's a source of new information. 
That's the treasure that we're always seeking, you know? Kill the dragon, go into the cave, kill the dragon, get the treasure. That's the hero story over and over and over again. All right, so Odin sacrificed one of his eyes. Remember, eyes are a symbol of consciousness. Um, that's also connected. This idea of sacrificing an eye is connect, connected to the story of Horus and Osiris that we talked about before, but that's neither here nor there. Odin sacrifices one of his eyes that from that day on lay in the well from which life emerged at the beginning of time. So what you have here is the well, the water in the well representing the unconscious, the dark depths. And in that well you have an eye which represents consciousness. You have consciousness within unconsciousness. That is an image of the Ouroboros. Opposites united. And from those opposites in union, just like in the ancient Babylonian story of Tiamat and Apsu, you have the beginning of life. You have a generative act. Consciousness and unconsciousness come together, and life is born from that. And that's what happens in the Norse story, just like, just like the Babylonian story. It's amazing. Like the whole, it typifies the moment of going into the unconscious, which one perceives as a sinking, descent, a going inside, a passageway into the other world. One attains another state of mind, namely an unconsciousness, that is a faraway kingdom that is always all around us. And that last bit is so good. The unconscious is, at the same time, to us, a faraway kingdom that is always all around us. And that is, again, far away and all around us, that's another, another um, union of opposites. We're talking about opposites. So what we have is a paradox, always. When we're talking about the Ouroboros, when we're talking about God and consciousness, we are always dealing with a paradox. And that's what this is, the world that is so distant from us that we don't know it but it happens to be part of us, the closest thing you can imagine. You're unconscious. And then there's one other, one other piece of evidence um, that goes back to this idea of a whole, and it's a, it's a story uh, from the gypsies. Uh, I think that's no longer politically correct to say. They call themselves Roma or Romani, but the gypsies. Now, she says that the gypsies believe that at the end of the world there is a hole through which one can let oneself down into the other world that is beneath the ground. That, that place lies in the west where the sun goes down. So there's some parallels with the, with the story from the Quran that we talked about a little earlier. This, the well is found at the, at the end of the world, the place where the sun goes down. Right, the end of the world, the farthest away place. That brings us to our next segment, which is called water. Reminds me of Bruce Lee when I say it, be like water. All right, so water, von Franz says, often has, mythologically speaking, a maternal quality. So I, when she says water has a maternal quality, she also says the Vedas, which are the ancient Hindu holy books, that the waters are called in the Vedas the most maternal. So I have, to, I have to stop for a second. I mean, why would water be associated with the mother or matern, uh, you know, being maternal in any way? And um, I think it really goes back to the idea of, of the womb, you know? 
to be in submerged in water is something like you were when you were in the womb and you're in the amniotic fluid, right? So you're in this, you know, enclosed world of water. So there's that. Um, so it's something like a, <clears throat> something like a womb. It's also mysterious and deep, and it's something that uh, can be hiding mysteries. It can be hiding things. Uh, that's why the the deep is is in the Bible is described as uh, kind of the origins of the cosmos. The deep, right? Anything can come from the abyss. Anything can come from the deep. Anything could be hiding there in the waters. And so there's unexpected and mysterious things that can be born from the waters. Um, and that's uh, again uh, related to the idea of a womb. So I think there's something like that going on. She says this <clears throat> this meaning emerges in the widespread folk belief concerning ponds and wells. In the waters live nixies, mermaids, and nymphs. As the Germanic tribe believes <clears throat> that before birth the human soul tarries in the waters, so they also assume that after death it returns there. Over the whole world, one finds the belief that the kingdom of the dead is reached by crossing over water. For instance, in, the ancient, in ancient Greece, the river Styx in the underworld Hades got to cross the river Styx to get to the underworld. Water is not only the original homeland and land of the dead of individual human beings, but in most creation myths, the actual primordial element out of which the whole cosmos arises. In India, immersion in the shimmering and continuously transforming element revealed the secret of Maya. So for those who don't know, Maya is this idea of illusion. It's that, that our perception is illusion, that the world is always covered by what they call the veil of perception, the veil of Maya. According to the Indians, you can, you can, well, you can be baptized by water, and the transforming nature of, of water will, sh will show you that your perceptions are illusion. They have this magical quality to show you the truth. Um, and von Franz goes on. She says, So is water under, under whose surface all submerged things reside, and which conceals unimaginable depths, a symbol for the unconscious, out of which everything real arises, but which can also flood and engulf reality. She says, But the creative power of the soul resides in the unconscious. Water often represents the depths which house the treasure for which the hero is searching. Amazing. So, the creative power resides in the unconscious. And that makes some sense. You know, if we are, uh, as a Christian might say, made in the image of God, and you have to ask, what connection can there possibly be between a mortal man and, and, a, and the almighty creator? Well, it's the creative power, right? It's... That, that thing which we're calling the unconscious is the source of our creative power, the place where new things can be born. And that's what we have in common with our creator, you know, the ability to be creative, the ability to create new things, whether that be children or works of art or literature or inventions or whatever it might be. All right, now she tells us another fairy tale, another Siberian tale called Imakut and the White Whale Woman. Now we got this story, Imakut and the White Whale Woman. It goes like this. The hero goes searching for his lost wife and comes upon a brook. When he approaches to drink, 
he sees within the water his deceased aunt sitting in her house. So you can imagine, you come up to this small creek, you reach down with your hands to take a drink of water, and you can see, rather than seeing straight to the bottom of the creek, he sees straight through it. And there's this world there. You know, he's like a bird's eye view floating above his aunt's house, seeing her there sitting, you know, doing normal things, seemingly alive. What happens is he starts to weep at the sight of uh, his, his dead aunt and his tears, they fall straight through the brook into the aunt's house. And she looks up, you know, she's, she's getting rained on. She looks up and she says to him, shut your eyes and come down. And so he shuts his eyes and he finds himself in the house with his aunt beneath the brook in the realm of the dead. Whew, buddy. So in this tale, again, we see the passage from the conscious realm into the unconscious. This time with water as the portal. It, like the whole and well, connect the two worlds together. Now, I do have to say that the hole and the well kind of have this link in common that they're both a hole into the earth, you know, or, or a hole into something. But a well is also filled with water, so you have a connection to water in the well. So I wanted to point that out. Um, again, the figure that appears in the unconscious is a woman, you know, just like we saw before, a representation of the unconscious, what we, what we would call the anima, what Jung would call the anima. So... Beneath the water, in the land of the dead, he encounters a woman. The unconscious, all of these are symbols of the unconscious, just the same as we saw in the story of the king and the hunters. Also, the notion that water represents the unconscious as the place from which the material cosmos was born is reflected in the Bible as the abyss, as the deep, you know? In Hebrew, that's, that's called tehom. And it calls back to the Babylonian goddess Tiamat. You know, Tehom and Tiamat are related words. And Tiamat was the goddess of salt water and the dragon of chaos. So you see there's a connection to water even with, uh, with Tiamat and to the serpent, right? The dragon of chaos, the serpent, which parallels the old Norse creation story that we talked about. We talked about Yggdrasil, the world tree. And coiled around the world tree is the dragon of chaos. It's not at all unlike the snake we see in the tree um, of knowledge in, in Genesis. All right, this brings me to my last bit here, which we're going to call the end of the world. All right, so the end of the world is another image, like the hole and water, which appears as the portal to the other world. So remember we, when we talked about the end of the world earlier, we were talking about the place where the sun goes down, the furthest place away that you can imagine, you know, the other side of the world. And that's, that's considered to be an entrance, you know, a way of getting to the unconscious by, by taking a journey to the farthest flung, you know, place, the edge of the world. So what we're going to see now is a tale, an Inuit tale called Masana. Now in this fairy tale, the hero becomes lost at sea on an ice shelf that broke free. So that, that even just saying that scares the bejesus out of me. Can you imagine 
being in the Arctic, hunting for seals or whatever, and you're and everything looks like land. It's not. It's ice. You know, thick ice floating on top of water, and you're you're out there. You know, who knows how long? You know, deep into this ice shelf, and it just breaks, and suddenly you notice the rest of the ice is floating away from you, and you it's like you can do nothing. You know, you can jump in the water. You're gonna freeze to death. You know, what are you going to do? You just, you're just stuck there on this floating raft, hoping you don't die. You know, this is what's happened to Masana. And after a long journey of floating around, he finds himself ashore on a strange land where the sun never rises. Okay, so here we see the strange land bit, which, you know, we might expect to see, the, the fairy land or the, the, you know, the land of the ancestors or whatever it might be. We find ourselves in the unconscious, and it's a place where the sun never rises. Of course it would be a place where the sun never rises because the light of consciousness isn't there. We're talking about the unconscious. And it's interesting because this is a Arctic people, you know. We're talking about the Inuits in Siberia. The place where the sun never rises to them, uh, it's both an actual place, you know, for Arctic dwellers, but also a symbol for the unconscious. And I think that's interesting because there's things like cenotes down in Mexico, these these big openings in, in the ground that open up to these gr- groundwater reservoirs, fresh water. And the ancient Maya and Aztec believed that they were entrances to the underworld. So for them, they had a literal, actual place that they could go and they could look at and say, that's the place where you can go to the underworld. And this is what this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing the place where the sun never rises. Well, if you're an Arctic person, that is a, that is a real place. If you go far enough north in the right season, there are, there are times where the sun does not rise for days and days and days. It's always under the horizon. It's the, you know... <laughs> it's the, the underworld, literally, you know? So when he finds himself there in this strange land, he begins to struggle with an estrangement from life. You know, he loses his desire to live or to return to the living. But that ended, ends up ending after a while when he finds a dead seal and he remembers, you know, the hunt and what it means to be alive. And it, it re-sparks that desire for him to be conscious again. So he obviously seeks to return to the land of the living, and he follows a dangerous path, you know, not un- unlike Odysseus in the Greek story trying to get home after the Battle of Troy, until he finds the light of the sun on the horizon. And he knows that that's his path home, and he can travel, travel back to where the sun rises, you know, back to consciousness. And von Franz says about the story that the suspension of the alteration of night and day, it shows the suspension of all opposites. And she says, for it is the opposites themselves that enable us to differentiate and perceive being consciously. Sometimes there follows a state in which the unconscious itself begins to lighten up and even to enlighten. And that's interesting. It's like there's two paths. There's two paths in these stories. Um, some myths point to escaping the unconscious, while others point to transforming the unconscious into the conscious. And either way, you're returning back home to the land of the living, to the to the mundane world. Um, but I just think that's super interesting that some of the stories tell you 
to escape from, from the unconscious, while others will tell you to transform it from within to make it conscious. And either way, you have your freedom, you know? It's, it's, it's a hint, you know, to say that you can run from it back to, to consciousness or that you can transform it from, from within says something interesting. It says that the, the, that the unconscious is a place within that you can go and that from within you have the power to t- change it into consciousness again. That means not only is the unconscious a part of you, you know, the unknown part of you, but it's something that you have some power over, you know? The way you have power to move your limbs, let's say. You have power over your unconscious. And the unconscious is the place, again, where novel things, new and novel things, where the unknown resides, where new things can be brought forward into being. And the stories always revolve around treasure because those new things might be useful. You never know. You know, somebody like um, Early Man who... uh, it didn't have the wheel and didn't have fire and didn't have all these basic technologies, at some point that, that would have been a new and novel thing that they would have encountered, they would have discovered. And it transformed not just that, that person, but all of the, the species, you know? It's an act in a real-life actual treasure. All right, Von Franz says, Jung emphasized that the mother signifies the unconscious as fundament of all conscious life. So what, what she's saying is that Jung says the unconscious is where consciousness comes from. It's what makes consciousness possible. She says, in various fairy tales, the way to the mother goes through a slit in a tree. In general, this motif describes the dissolution of consciousness by the polar nature of the unconscious. So here she's talking about getting to the unconscious through a hole in a tree, which ties back to the hole, the well, uh, water, and the world tree, all of those things that we've been talking about. Uh, you can start to see all of these images, the water, well, you know, the world tree, uh, all of these images start to become a kind of cloud of associations that help us to understand what the unconscious is. And this is what we use to tell our stories. Stories about a hole, stories about a snake. You know, it's not just a hole, it's not just a snake. It means something much, much deeper than that. All right, I lied to you when I said that was the last section. We have one more. It's called The Woods or The Forest. All right, so in this one, von Franz tells us a Germanic fairy tale called The Magic Horse. The story goes like this A young man goes to work for an old shepherd who's blind in one eye. The old man warns him not to go into a certain forest, as no one has ever returned alive. He, of course, immediately goes there and encounters a dragon that he has to slay. Each day he returns to find a worse dragon with more heads. So you might think about the Hydra from the story of Hercules. The, the dragon with many heads is impossible to kill. It just keeps, The more you try, the worse it gets. Um, finally, though... He returns to the forest, and he doesn't find a dragon, right? He's killed all these dragons. Now now he finds a house, and in the house is an old woman. Uh, Again, the old woman should remind you from the stories we've seen so far as a a representation of the anima, as as a representation of the unconscious. Now, she was the mother of those dragons, so of course, she attacks him too. And 
what comes to my mind here is the story of uh, Beowulf. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Beowulf. Uh, and Beowulf is the hero in this um, medieval Germanic story, and he has to kill the monster Grendel. But once he kills Grendel, he realizes that it's not just Grendel out there doing the damage. He has to also kill Grendel's mother. And to do that, he has to go deep into the cave to find her and slay her. And that's what you see here. After the dragons are killed, now the, the old woman is the dragon's mother, and she is also attacking him. So the hero eventually wins, right? He defeats her too. When he does, she pleads for her life, and she offers in exchange the cure for the old man's eye. So remember, he, he's blind in, in, in one of his eyes. So that's the treasure, right? He encounters the unconscious, this this woman. He struggles and fights with her, um, and he gets uh, something in the exchange. He earns some some something valuable, something new. In this case, the cure for the old man's eye. So he, he returns to the old man. He heals the whole old man's eye. As a reward, the old man gives him a magic horse. And so the rest of the story is all about all the great things he can do with his magic horse. This idea of the eye and restoring the eye. Uh, we talked about the eye as a symbol for consciousness already. In, this, in the ancient Egyptian story of um, Osiris and, and Isis and Horus, um, um, Osiris ends up um, killed by his brother and torn to pieces and thrown into the Nile. And when, he, when his son Horus goes into the underworld to save him, uh, he gives... Osiris, one of his eyes, so he can restore sight, so he can restore consciousness to his father who was, who was dead, who was living in the unconscious. So you have this connection between restoring the eye, restoring consciousness to the unconscious, which is, again, uh, one of those possibilities. Flee from the unconscious or transform it into the conscious. And that's what we see with this idea of restoring the eye uh, you know, to, the, to the unconscious. Uh, okay, so here we see again an encounter with the unconscious in the image of the deep, dark, wild forest. And there is a treasure to be gained by it, right? The cure for the old man's eye. This brings to mind another myth, um, a very old one, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So if anybody's ever read that story, that's, that's the origin story for the uh, great flood that we see in the Bible. It's an older story from Mesopotamia. And in that story... There's a quest for the herb of immortality. It also reminds me of the kind of King Arthur, the Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail. There's always something to be gained, some, some treasure to be gained, very, very powerful, magical treasure to be gained by a conflict with the unconscious, with the dragon, with the anima, with the old witch, you know, that kind of thing. Von Franz says... The unconscious is represented by the forest or the woods. Examples are found in Hansel and Gretel, Snow White, and in Little Red Riding Hood. Where Hansel and Gretel find the house of the witch in the forest, Snow White flees from her stepmother in the forest, etc. The forest is similar to the lake or the sea, a dark realm full of unknown shapes. As Nick sees in water... So do forest women live in the woods. The ancient Greeks, Celts, and Germanic tribes heard the voice of the gods in the rustling through the trees of the sacred grove. And for the primitives, the forest houses the dead and other spirits. 
So that's interesting. You know, the sacred grove connects back to the Native American and the Old Norse world tree because trees become sacred in, in these, you know, ancient cultures. But also back to the Garden of Eden, right? The tree stands front and center in the story of the Garden of Eden. So these really are universal stories. We can read it in a folktale like we did several times today, but you can see evidence in the Bible and in classical religions that these stories repeat and repeat and repeat. That brings me to my conclusion. Von Franz reminds us that our fantasies are more than creative fancy, as are our dreams. We know this because they are not random. Far from it. The images and events in our dreams appear in our myths and fairy tales with all of the same significances. The random has no significance. It is mere happenstance. But our fantasies are consistent and narrative. They speak in the same words. There is a world parallel to our own. There is a self parallel to ourself. There is a hidden place containing hidden things, and we can cross into it if only we know the way. We encounter our unconscious, the unconscious, and tell stories, like Hansel's breadcrumbs, that have the power to lead us back again. The hole, the tree, the well, the end of the world, the underground, an old woman, eyes, snakes, and darkness. These are the breadcrumbs dropped for us by our deepest ancestors. And so we learn to understand the unknowable and to seek the unconscious through these. They are the symbols of a language as old as our species, one that all can interpret, but no one can speak. The unknowable becomes the goddess of snakes, of serpents, of the underworld. The keeper of consciousness, she is hidden within all things, hidden within the forest and the waters, within the shadows and the mystery of death. She is the invisible, supernatural force, the nixies, fairies, and gnomes. And thus, we come to know the unknowable, as Jung would have it, in images. We become conscious of the unconscious part of ourselves and fantasy. These are our myths and fairy tales, and there are many, many more to explore. We are just scratching the surface. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode 